Well, friends, here we are, the end of the book of Job. It has been a journey. I hope you've enjoyed the series. I, I really have, I have to say. I've really enjoyed it. I was so intimidated by um, attempting to tackle and teach this book that so many people have <laughs> stayed away from and warned everyone else to stay away from, but uh, it's been so worth it. It's difficult, it's challenging, but it's so rich and so beautiful. Um, in many ways, it honestly reflects the human experience in that regard, and I, I find that so um, reassuring and so refreshing. So last week we took off from Job uh, to celebrate the anniversary with an in-person service. So it's been a minute since we've last been in the story of this book. By the way, thank you again to all of you who came out to the anniversary last week. Uh, it was a really powerful night. I was choking back tears uh, pretty much the entire time, um, which I still don't fully understand, but it was just such a powerful experience and it was so good to be back with all of you. Um, we're going to be doing a lot more of that very soon. So make sure if you're listening to this talk as part of the liturgy to stick around for the announcements at the end. And if not, watch your inboxes tomorrow. Tomorrow being Wednesday, October the 7th, 2020, in the year of our Lord. Anyway, <clears throat> let's get to this final installment in the book of Job. When we last left off, God has finally shown up in the story and he, he speaks to Job through this whirlwind, um, through this storm. And he gives uh, this beautiful speech all about the complexity of creation and nature, all as displays of his power. Sort of initially, it feels like putting Job in his place. God is saying, listen, Job, you and I are not on equal standing here. And Job relents to God and says, you're right. I'm speaking about things I don't understand and I'm going to shut up now and listen. But then God continues speaking, continues talking about his creation, specifically talking about two beasts of nature. Job has already relented. He's already said, God, you're right. Like I have no standing here. So God continuing on in his speech here is important. It's not a direct continuation of thought from the first half of God's speech. God's doing something new here. And what God is doing is pulling back the curtain a bit and showing Job that two elements of creation are responsible for most of the suffering in the world. Behemoth, which symbolizes the, the ambitious drive of humanity and like the free will of humanity. And then Leviathan, which symbolizes the randomness and, and bit of chaos that is to some degree embedded into the natural world. This is what they talk all last week was about that Jared gave, or two weeks ago that Jared gave that you can go back and listen to. God is not apologizing to Job for these things. They're necessary parts of God's plan for creation. For instance, behemoth or, or um, human free will is a necessary part of God's creation because goodness freely chosen cannot occur without the freedom to also choose evil and selfishness. Behemoth and Leviathan are elements of God's creation, but they are beasts that require God's constant engagement. As Harold Kushner, a, a Jewish writer and author um, that we've been quoting a lot throughout this series, as he explains, 
Uh, the last half of God's speech is an admission that the world is not perfect, but not because of any weakness or limitation on God's part. Our world could not be the world that God had in mind if it did not include behemoth and Leviathan, ambition and randomness, and all the harm they can cause. So God concludes his speech. And then Job says two things at the very beginning of chapter 42, which is going to be our focus tonight. He says two parts of one whole thought in response to God, in response to this beautiful speech that God has just given. The first is verses one through three. And Job says this, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. So that's all pretty straightforward, right? Job is essentially reiterating what he's already said before in the middle of God's speeches. He's realizing that he's contending with a God um, and forces far beyond his understanding. But then he says one last thing in verses four through six. These are the last words of Job in the entire book. And the entire, <laughs> the crux of this entire book hangs on the very last thing Job says, verse six. And as you might come to expect <laughs> from this book, the Hebrew here in verse six is ambiguous, <laughs> which means there are a few different ways that you can interpret this last phase of Job. And depending on how you do so, your interpretation of the entire book shifts. Here's how the NIV translates verses four through six. Job is speaking to God and he says, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Well, here's my answer. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The end. Now, hang on. Stay with me. Job essentially says, I used to only hear about you, God, and I only knew about you from secondhand knowledge, from what people told me of you. Now I've heard from you directly. Therefore, dot, dot, dot. And it's what follows that dot, dot, dot that is completely ambiguous in the original Hebrew. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of arguments for why the NIV's translation, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's a lot of arguments for why that's lacking. And it all comes down to some of the intricacies of ancient Hebrew and some of the um, ways that phrases like dust and ashes are used throughout the rest of the Old Testament. I'll spare you the nitty gritty, but suffice it, suffice it to say, it all comes down to this last sentence said by Job, the whole book. And again, there's no, <laughs> there's no consensus on what this last sentence says, <laughs> which maybe I have a sick sense of humor, but I feel like is hilarious. <laughs> you have to keep a sense of humor about these things or you'll go insane, especially in 2020. But despite the lack of clear direction, there's still a few different interpretations that we can hang our hat on. And I've fallen firmly in one interpretive camp. But to hear another perspective um, that I won't be delineating tonight, whose arguments I find quite compelling, um, check out Pete Enns and his podcast, The Bible for Normal People. Uh, he has an episode pretty recently 
actually on the book of Job. And he does a fantastic job going over the whole book in less than an hour. And he strings together some pretty intricate arguments to present an interpretation of the book that sees the entire story as a parable about the nation of Israel being exiled and then restored. And it's, it's really compelling. It's a pretty comprehensive and cohesive argument. It's good stuff. So if you're interested, check that out. The interpretation of verse six, and therefore the whole book <laughs> that I am most convinced by, I think is best represented again by Harold Kushner, who sees this final thought rendered this way. Verse six being rendered this way. Job says to God, I reject everything that has been set up to this point by me and my visitors. And having met God and been reassured that I am not alone and abandoned in this world, I am comforted, vulnerable human being that I am. I'll read that again. This is the crux. This is Joe's final response to God. I reject everything that has been set up to this point by me and my visitors. And having met God and been reassured that I am not alone and abandoned in this world, I'm comforted, vulnerable human being that I am. Job is finally comforted by this encounter with God. His questions aren't answered. Job's doubts aren't erased by the content of what God has said to him, but by his contact with God himself. Contact over content. That's what we see happening here. Job finds comfort and some degree of reprieve from his suffering, not because of information God gives him, but simply because he encounters God. Job has moved from theology about God to a direct encounter and experience of God, reassuring him that God is indeed present and active with us. Contact over content. I think it's important to note if you read the book of Job this way and you're not currently suffering, this conclusion is really not satisfying. When you're not suffering, you can be far more removed from the pain and you can stay objective and you can simply want the information, want the answers, want the theology to put the puzzle pieces together of the problem of pain and evil in the world. But when you're the one suffering, sometimes simply being reassured that God is indeed present, that God does hear you, that God is with you, is exactly what you need. This reminds me a lot of Doubting Thomas from the New Testament, who's one of my favorite figures. He's only finally comforted when he encounters the resurrected Christ. None of his questions about how any of this is happening are answered, but those answers aren't ultimately what Thomas needed. What Thomas needed was an encounter with the living God. That's what we all need. This is where uh, the epic poem of Job ends. And we enter, if you remember from if, back at the beginning of the story, we enter back into the fable to conclude this grand story of the book of Job. And in the fable ending, God reprimands, reprimands Job's friends for misrepresenting God and not speaking the truth as they propagated a vending machine view of God. 
And he praises Job for speaking the truth and praises Job for being honest. And he restores to Job everything that's been taken away. And Job lives happily ever after. (laughs) It's a weird book. So what can we take away from this? I think there are a few messages. Number one, God is not a vending machine whose output we can control based on input. People who suffer aren't necessarily suffering because they've done something wrong. People who seem to be blessed aren't necessarily blessed because they're doing something right. God isn't a vending machine. The world is huge. It's mysterious. It's complex. There's an element of chaos and randomness in it. Humans have free will, which allows them to choose unfathomable beauty, but also unspeakable evil. God is not a simple equation based in Newtonian physics where A plus B always equals C or where every action has an equal and opposite reaction. God is not a machine. Number two, a God worth worshiping is a God who prefers honest anger over empty flattery. That's the second message that we can take away from the book of Job. We can be honest with God. We can scream in rage to or at God. God can handle it. And as we see in Job, God prefers someone who's willing to wrestle, who's willing to challenge, um, who's willing to not settle for easy answers. God prefers that over those who turn off their brains and simply send empty flattery up to God. Don't fake it with God. Don't shove your feelings down. Don't deny them. Don't pretend like they aren't there. Don't be afraid of them. Doing that is the best way for them to control you. But if you don't want those feelings to rule you, the best way to, to be free of them is by getting them out into the air and processing through them. Be honest, especially with the heavy and dark thoughts and feelings that you have, especially in the midst of your suffering. Who better to send those things to than God? Number three, when we're suffering, an encounter with God who is present with us and actively involved in the world satisfies the questions to which knowledge of God has no answers. I'll say that again. When we're suffering, an encounter with God who is present with us and actively involved in the world satisfies the questions to which knowledge of God has no answers. Contact over content. But how do we encounter God? How do we have that kind of direct contact with God in the absence of a voice speaking to us in the whirlwind of a storm or in the absence of the physically present risen Christ? How do we have an encounter with God? We're actually going to talk about that a little bit this next week. But in the meantime, I've said this before, but I'm convinced that the church being described as the body of Christ is not just a, a convenient or cute metaphor, but it encapsulates our purpose. We are to be the visible representation of an invisible God. We are to be the means of blessing for the whole world. We are to be windows through which the God of creation can be seen and felt and heard. So in the absence of a voice in the whirlwind, in the absence of the 
a physical body of Jesus. God has given the world you and me and us and each other. And that's an incredible calling. This doesn't mean the church is perfect or even close to being a perfect reflection of God. But it does mean that we experience God through com- the community of saints um, as we offer images to the world and to each other of what true hope, true joy, love, grace, forgiveness, generosity, and compassion look like. It's in community that we experience so many of the aspects of God. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't meet us in, in, in the silence and solitude. Obviously, he does. But when we're suffering, we tend to isolate ourselves away from community. And I think in those moments, community is exactly where God is waiting to meet us. I can tell you and have told you numerous times that I only continue to have faith in God because I've experienced his love, because I've encountered him through this community of people who continually extend grace and love to me. People around me who give me hope that maybe God does exist. Maybe he does love me. Even when I can't bring myself to believe in him. You witnessed this firsthand a few weeks ago when I, uh, through sobs, listed so many of the ways where God has been present to me lately. I think most, if not all, were through other people. Which brings us to our final takeaway from this book of Job. Takeaway number four. All of us need to be reminded that we are the visible image of an invisible God to each other in the world. Which means we need to have compassion on those who are suffering. Like I said a few weeks ago, Job's friends really tried to do the right thing. They dropped everything to come sit with Job in his pain, which was the right thing to do. Compassion literally means to suffer with. And that's what we need to do for others who suffer. But that means resisting the urge to distance ourselves from those who suffer. We need to resist the urge to offer simple answers to complex problems we don't fully understand, especially if the answer we're offering is blaming the person suffering. Sure, there are certainly instances where we suffer as a result of our poor choices. That happens all the time. But one of the points of Job is to warn against universalizing this and and saying that it's always the case. When we do that, what we're also promoting is a vending machine relationship with God, where God punishes people because they do something wrong. And therefore, if someone is suffering, that means they did something wrong. Instead of simple answers, we need to get comfortable saying, I don't know, to our friends when they ask us impossible questions. We need to weep with our friends who suffer. We need to scream into the void with them. Rather than blame them for their own suffering, we need to wrestle with and question God alongside of them, sometimes on their behalf, because this might be where they encounter God. In the wrestling, in the questioning, because God is not a machine. God is present and active, and God is after our honesty, even honest anger, not our flattery. The book of Job is vastly complex. It's a rich work of art that grapples with the darkest aspects of our human experience. And again, 
There is no vast and wide consensus on the intricacies and details of this book or even the overall message. (laughs) So if you find yourself still not sure about any of this, you are in good company. I think that lack of clear definition, I think that was at least in part the author's intent. They weren't trying to give simple and easy answers. They were, in tr- they were trying to encourage us to wrestle and struggle in the search for truth, knowing that we may just encounter God there in the struggle. I'm going to close with another quote from Kushner because that seems appropriate. Ultimately, I think, God says through the book of Job, This world will not be a perfect world, but it will be a world marked by great natural beauty, inspiring human creativity, and astonishing human resilience. And I will be with you in all of those times.